Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Ronnie Pirellis, Chief Rabbi Dr. Isaac Abraham and Yelena Rachel Alkali, Chair and Associate Professor of Sephardic Studies at the Bernard Ravel Graduate School of Jewish Studies of Yeshiva University. He's here to talk to us about his new book, Narratives from the Sephardic Atlantic, Blood and Faith published in 2016 by Indiana University Press. Ronnie, thanks very much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Fantastic. So first question, how did you come to write this book? You know, every book has, has so many stories in its genealogy, and the, the book came came in, the, the development of, it, of this book came in different stages. Um, part of it started with a... Uh, a summer in the rare book room of, of JTS, Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, where as a grad student, I was paid very little money, but was given very little guidance. And I was told to catalog the Spanish and Portuguese books. And uh, I was a graduate student in Spanish Portuguese literature at NYU. And uh, this was a nice, nice fit. And it was great because they didn't really care what I did. Um, they were excited whenever I came with a good question to one of the librarians about why a certain book was there. And some of the books that really caught my eye were travel books, books that were in the libraries of, of Jews in, in the Spanish Portuguese community of Amsterdam in particular, um, that had to do with the wide developing world of, of, of colonialism and international trade, uh, books of history uh, books of anthropology and travel tales from all over the world. And I was curious, why would these books be in a Jewish library? What's going on here? Um, and at the same time, I was studying colonial uh, Latin American literature and, and history and thinking about a lot of those travel narratives, narratives starting with Columbus and going up through, you know, to the late colonial period of, of Spanish and Portuguese explorers and uh, writing about the places that they went and, and, and explaining their encounters with, with the new world. And I knew from, I knew that there was a record of the presence of Jews and mostly crypto Jews and conversos in the Americas. We know that they were there from a mixture of people writing about it after they were there um, and coming back to open Jewish communities like Amsterdam or Italy um, and talking about being in the in the Americas. And we know about it from inquisitorial trials. We know about it from uh, Spanish colonial officials complaining about all these godless uh, conversos passing through with impunity to the Americas. But I was curious about these people writing their life story down. What was their experience of coming to the Americas what was going on for them in somewhat internally? Um, what was their, what were their impressions? And I was hungry to find some sort of literature, uh, that was produced by conversos, uh, with a Jewish consciousness, um, and people who embraced Judaism later in their life talking about the encounter with the Americas. That was, that was one of the first flickers of this, of this project. But there was another, I, I would say probably a deeper one, which is that, I, like many people who studied uh, Spanish-Jewish history, uh, have had from a very young age a fascination with, with, with crypto-Jews, with the story of the Moranos, and it's something I always thought, oh, maybe I would look at in some serious way, never really knew which angle I would take with it. Um, and then in, in graduate school, in a seminar, we were asked to, to analyze a primary source of the colonial period, and I was home for, for a break, and I remember my dad had this book on his shelf. My, my parents did business in Mexico for many years, um, and uh, one of their clients gifted them a, a, a book 
and it's on my shelf today. And the book is um, La Familia Carvajal. Um, it's a history written in the 30s, late 30s, by Alfonso Toro, a important historian of, of the colonial period in Mexico. And what I was always curious about is why is this gray, very large, a very fat tome uh, book called La Familia Carvajal, the Carvajal family, why does it have a menorah on it? And as a little kid, I never knew why. I never asked. I just was curious about it. And as a graduate student, I took it off the shelf finally and looked through it. And I found in the back a, bo- um, a small autobiography written by the main protagonist of the Carvajal family, Luis de Carvajal, that blew my mind. I was this amazing, cryptic, fascinating, passionate um, life, spiritual autobiography of someone um, who born in Mex- born in Spain, moves to Mexico with his family, has this very adventurous life, and uh, embraces his Judaism in a very uh, in a very passionate, forceful manner, um, and engages Jewish texts in a very creative way. And I was I I just didn't I thought this was the was just a uh, such a cool, amazing uh, work. But I shelved it, and I said, okay, I don't know. That was very cool. I wrote a nice little paper, and then I, I moved on. But later on, as I started thinking about the encounter with the Americas between between the old world and the new, um, and thinking about in my interest in autobiography, my interest in travel literature, my interest in, in all these different things combining, um, I started to slowly look for other works where people – are, are describing their, their experience as crypto Jews in the Americas. Um, and it developed from Carvajal out to include, um, Antonio de Montesinos, uh, who otherwise known as Aharon Halevi, um, who after doing business for a few months in, in, in South America, um, has an experience where when he comes back to Europe, he goes to Amsterdam to Jewish community where he describes uh, where he describes in, his encounter with the lost tribe of Reuben in the Andes. And uh, that's, uh, you know, a one one other um, story. In the, and the last story is not an American story, but it's an Atlantic story. It's a story of a old Christian from the Azores, the Azores, uh, the, the islands, the Portuguese islands in the North Atlantic, who, after searching out many different religions, comes to discover uh, Judaism and embraces it and lives this, lives lives as a Jew in Amsterdam for the rest of his life and writes down a fascinating story of peregrinations and, and transformations um, from the from the turn of the 17th century. Um, and so they became the people I sat with and studied from and, and tried to understand their lives better. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's partially what happened. And I'll just say one, th- a, th- a third angle to this whole story is that uh, this started as a dissertation, and when I was done with the dissertation, I I really thought it couldn't be improved. It was so good. <laughs> I was like, it's such a good dissertation. I mean, what can you do? And I really, I, I really, and and I had the gift of time, and I I I did I I, I as I was finishing the dissertation, I was teaching high school full time and doing other things. And I put it aside and I went on to other projects and had other, 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 other things come up in my life. And I looked at the dissertation again. I still didn't know what to do with it. And I was teaching at Brandeis University in the Spanish and Latin American studies department at the time known as Romance language, Romance studies. And, and there was a, a, a social historian, Silvia Rome, um, who offered to read my thesis and we met for lunch. And in the course of that lunch, I was able to see that this is really a story about family. As much as as I was younger, I thought it was a story about the individual becoming himself. They're all men that I study um, about the individual finding God, finding the truth and changing their lives and charting their own path. These are autobiographies after all, right? Actually, if you look Closely, these are individuals who are like Natalie Zeman Davis, the great historian uh, of the early modern period, talks about these are people who are deeply embedded in their families, in their societies, in their cultures, in their microcultures, um, and their communities. And I started thinking more and more about the text, and I realized that, that so much of what's animating 
and connecting these three these three sources, but also so much of what's happening in the converso Sephardi world at the time um, is a story of families, family networks, business networks that also function as spiritual networks. And one of the cool things that I saw with these texts is that all three of them are deeply embedded in their in their biological, socioeconomic family structures, but they also all break out of those structures via what I what I what what I call in the book not blood family but faith families. And so, you know, you meet someone in prison. And you you find in, in inquisitorial prison, and you find that you have this shared passion for secret Judaism together. Um, you go through difficult experiences, you sacrifice together, and lo and behold, someone who's not part of your family, someone who's not even part of your ethnic group, who's not a converso, um, you can bond with, or vice versa. Uh, someone who was born as as Manuel de, de Cardoso de Macedo, my my third the third subject in the book. Uh, he was born to an old Christian family. In fact, he says, you know, my father, my father and my father's family hated Jews so much that they there wouldn't be enough wood in the world for them to burn all the Jews with. You know, and, and, and lo and behold, he befriends a Jew in prison and it changes his life. So this, it's an interesting way how, how blood is so important and yet it's, yet it's not everything. That there's spirit, that there's faith, and that people create very powerful bonds. Um, that become like spiritual brothers, spiritual paternity, spiritual brotherhood, um, and sisterhood and motherhood, um, in, 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 in this way. So these things all kind of over time came together, um, to, to inform the book. All right. So for the rest of the interview, we might sort of turn text by text to those three, um, authors and their, um, autobiographies that you mentioned. So the first text you analyze in depth is Luis de Carvajal, the Younger's spiritual autobiography. Chapter two, you look at the text themes around spiritual and social fraternity and paternity. And then in chapter three, you look at uh, motherhood and sorority uh, in, in this text. So tell us a bit about this. Yeah, so uh, Carvajal is part of a, a large converso family. And he becomes historically important and not just, I guess, existentially important because he, his uncle, um, gets awarded the governorship uh, of a territory in, in modern day Mexico in the area of, of modern day Veracruz, uh, in the north and northern section, northern coastal section of, of Mexico. Um, at the time it was known as the, the new kingdom of Leon and He's awarded the right to settle this place, to be the governor, and to pass that governorship on to his to to a to an heir. Um, he had no sons, and he he came back to Spain to try to um, enlist family members to come join him on this on this colonizing mission. And from afar, it sounded very good. In actuality, the place was a, really a mess. It was a mixture of of inhospitable desert and and swamp, uh, so it's not a not a not a promised land. Um, however, there were very very rich uh, silver mines, which were a great opportunity, but also attracted tremendous marauding by by nomadic um, natives, and and had a lot of, had its own set of problems. So he needed people to help him settle. He needed someone to be his right hand man, or several people to be to be his assistants, and he turned to his family naturally for that. Um, and so he, they go as a family, a very large, large um, group of people, fam- family members, and other 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 known, you know, other related people on a boat to Mexico. They come, and eventually, uh, Carvajal and 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 the whole family get found out. Um, for some of the members, crypto Judaism. Now, the the governor uh, was seems in all everything everything seems to point to the fact that the governor, his uncle, who's also called Luis de Carvajal, that's why Louis the one I study is Luis de Carvajal the younger. Um, his his uncle is the older, the elder. Um, he seems to be a passionate 
Catholic. He seems to be someone who who started out his life like a classic converso, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what that means in a second. Uh, he starts out his life like a classic converso, and over time seems to remake his identity into that of the classic old Christian. Um, in with the advent in, in the four, in the fourteen hundreds of large groups of of Jews converting to Jew, to Catholicism in Spain, uh, you start to get a backlash around the fourteen fifties from the majority Catholic community against not Jews, but against converts. There was a sense that these converts came to Catholicism not through faith, but through either duress or opportunity, um, and that they, on some level, were still socioculturally um, and, and in many cases, religiously Jewish, despite the fact that they now are Catholics and go to church and send their children to to monasteries and convents and 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 everything that goes with it, and so there starts to be a differentiation between what was what were known who were known as people who are known as old Catholics and I'm sorry old Christians and new Christians, um, and the new Christians who were the conversos um, were discriminated against in all sorts of official cat capacities. They were denied access to certain colleges, denied access to certain guilds, um, and their genealogy was recorded. And you had to prove that you were old Christian in order to belong to all sorts of important cultural and, and socioeconomic uh, institutions. So one of the stigmas of the new Christian is that they were merchants. And in fact, in many cases, they were. Um, Jews in the medieval period, were d dedicated themselves in many cases to, to um, small trade and overland trade, finance, and things of this nature. With the opening up the, of the Atlantic world and the and these huge trade opportunities, um, although Jews did get into it, the people who really got into it, even in, in a greater sense, in the Iberian world, were former Jews, were conversos who had large, who often through the use of large family networks developed large trading networks um, uh, that were very successful and very important to Iberian, um, to the Iberian economy. And yet they were stigmatized. They were stigmatized as being men of, men of business, men of the nation, as they were known in Portugal. Um, and, and business was seen as kind of dirty Jew work, not honorable, proud work that an old Christian would do, like plowing the land or fighting in a war or, um, you know, kind of or manual or art, art, artisanal um, trades. And so our Luis de Carvajal starts his life like a classic new Christian. He gets into business. He does, he does over, he does Atlantic trade um, with his Portuguese converso partner um, they get a contract to bring slaves from from Western Africa and to and to do and to do general trade with Western Africa. He goes to the to the Caribbean. Um, he ends up marrying the daughter of his partner, which was a classic converso merchant move. Um, and and everything is pointing in the direction that he's basically going like everyone else in his class, which is merchant with with a very peripatetic life, marrying endogamously. Um, and being part of one of these interconnected communities. Yet at some point, he goes on a different direction and he throws himself into the wars of conquest and pacification, the, the horrendous euphemistic term that the Spanish used to talk about wars against uh, violent uh, natives, uh, the wars of pacification against the Chichimecos, the, the nomadic native groups that were in, in northern Mexico, and he does very well. In this, in this endeavor, gains distinction and, and gets almost the ultimate ticket out of conversodom, um, and of being tainted as being somewhat Jewish. He becomes, he becomes a Hidalgo. He becomes someone with a title that he can pass down to his, to his, to his heirs. This is the golden ticket. And he thinks he's going to pull it off. Uh, but unfortunately, the rest of his family, um, is deeply enmeshed in that wider conversal world. And many of them 
seemingly unknown to him or, or maybe he's willingly not wanting to know. It's unclear from the trial records. Uh, many of those family members are not just good at business and other, other classic converso uh, traits, but they actually are, um, are devout crypto Jews. Uh, there are Muranos. There are people who secretly keep Judaism in some form. Um, it doesn't look like normative Judaism. This looks like a very idiosyncratic, uh, but very passionate and very creative, uh, form of Judaism. And, and members of that family are, are, are devoutly committed to their Judaism, um, albeit in very different ways and with a real sliding scale of, of, of actual observance and knowledge. His nephew, who he puts in charge of his, who's going to be his heir, who's his right-hand man, who he goes on missions uh, with and who has all these experience with, his nephew is, is possibly the most passionate and creative of this crypto-Jewish group, and he manages to keep it from his uncle for a very, very long time until it's too late and they're all arrested and, and things, uh, things unravel. And so the, the brotherhood has to do with all sorts of – and paternity has to do with the fact how Carvajal – relates to his father in the autobiography and in the trial records. That's one of the, the wonderful things about studying Carvajal is that we have these very detailed trial records of the entire family that you can, from the Inquisition to inquisitorial trials that you can compare to how he describes his world in his autobiography. And uh, so I talk about his relationship with the father as it appears in, in the trials versus how it appears in the autobiography. I talk about the, his alternative father figures, people like his uncle, who on some level is a, is, could be a model, but at the same time, um, is obviously a, a mortal enemy, a spiritual enemy. I talk about his, his bonding with the kindly rector of the monastery where he's placed to work. Um, this is a person, uh, Pedro de Oroz, who was a very learned man and who, um, rejoiced with Luis when they would receive new volumes of, of, of great, um, scholarship. And, um, Luis bonded with this individual despite the fact that Luis was behind this, this priest back was secretly going into the, the library and copying using his access to these, these major works of Christian scholarship to poach Jewish texts out of them. Right. So many of these works were, um, would be critical of Judaism as is the want of a lot of medieval and renaissance uh, uh, Christian scholarship. It would be critical of rabbinic positions on certain interpretations of, 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 of verses from the Bible. And to Luis's good fortune, uh, the style of the medieval period was to not just refer to Maimonides, but to quote a large passage of Maimonides and then critique it. And so Luis, looking for Maimonides, or if anything Jewish, could go in and copy out sections of Maimonides or the Talmud or, or, or Rashi, um, and, and, um, have it as part of his Jewish anthology, uh, that he would be creating, uh, while this, this kindly, uh, uh, priest gave him the, literally gave him the keys to the library, um, that he was using in a counter in a, in a pretty, pretty uh, subversive way. Um, he also becomes very close to his own brother that they share a lot with, but he also has a brother who's a monk with whom he has to part ways. And the, his, so we, I analyze those engagements. And, and finally, I talk about um, two people he meets in prison. Uh, one is someone who very early on in, in their time in prison together in, in the Inquisition, um, this wayward, wayward monk um, embraces Judaism and they, and they, they have a very profound spiritual experience and bonding in prison. Um, and the last person I look at is someone who was placed in a cell to be a spy and actually worked like a spy and betray and helped, um, and got information out of Luis that ended up betraying many, many, many fellow crypto Jews. And it's a very, it's a real story of betrayal in light of these other stories of real connection and, and, and fellowship. One of the things that evolved as I was looking at these, at the, at the story, at the, at these life stories is that, um, there's an absence of women. In, in many of them, women don't appear with these are stories about men, about men. Once in a while, you have very few little flits of, of, of women appearing. 
But in Carvajal's case, that's not the case. Carvajal is extremely close to his mother and his sisters. He puts them up on a pedestal. They're, they're spiritual models for him. And, um, and, and, um, and so the feminine and the place of women in his world, um, is very important. And, it, and I look there in particular the difference between how he describes them in the autobiography and how they themselves present themselves in their own trials and how they talk about their brother. And so there's kind of a triangulation that happens uh, because we have the, 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 the sources from the, the trials um, to better understand, to better think about what was the spirituality of his sisters, not just how they played into his own life um, and, and how they were kind of um, these kind of ideal ideal uh, Jewish women, biblical, biblical style heroines that he talks about, which is an important role also. But that's, so that's, that's kind of what I do in those two chapters on Carvajal. Um, and, and thrown in there, I talk about his, his in-laws and I talk about, uh, you know, other things related and the fact that Carvajal himself is not married. Um, and, and to, to what extent, how does that play out? So you then tend to look at Manuel Cardoso de Macedo. Tell us about him and the way you suggest that he wrote his way into the Jewish people. Yeah, so here we have a, a person who was born to a, a well-to-do merchant in the Azores, and although conversos were often depicted, uh, were often seen to be always merchants, here we have a case where we have a, a very devoutly Catholic, old Christian merchant, Um and this merchant who lives in the Azores does a lot of business with England. And so he wants his son to be fluent in English and, and, and develop more connections in, in England. So he sends his son in the latter part of the 16th century, the last decade, um, sends his teenage son to England to study English. He, I, I'm not really sure what the father thought um, in terms of sending off his adolescent son to the hotbed of, of, of the, you know, Protestantism. And, 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 you know, the explosion of new religious ideas that were happening in England at that time, um, considering how devoutly Catholic his father was. But nonetheless, he sends his son there and quickly, according to the son, he sees the truth of Catholic, of Protestantism, rejects Catholicism as, as foolish and, um, spends a lot of his time there, not only learning English, but really embracing, um, Protestantism in particular Calvinism. And um, sure enough, on, on a visit home, when he's confronted by the local bishop, he declares with tremendous bravado that I'm a Calvinist and a Calvinist, I'm going to die. And so he is arrested. But the whole time in the, tr- in the way that Cardoso talks about it, the whole time he describes that the, inquisitor, the inquisitors are aware of his background. They're aware that he comes from a good family, that this is foolish, um, foolish, you know, spirit that kind of entered this adolescent and that eventually he's going to come back to the truth. He's going to come back to the milk of the mother church that he was raised on. Um, those are the terms that, that Cardoso used to talk about his experience with the inquisitors. But sure enough, he was pretty adamant and they send him to Lisbon to the inquisition. And again, there he's, He's very adamant. He describes these encounters where he proves them all wrong using very cliched uh, Protestant um, arguments. This is all in the autobiography. In his trial record, which we also have his trial record, which is a gold mine, um, we have very little evidence of this. Um, he seems pretty passive, and and it's unclear. You know, this image of the of the very fiery Protestant is not so apparent in the in the trial records. Um, but that could be for all sorts of reasons. But at least in his autobiography, the way he writes about that time is he's this fiery truth seeker um, that will only be swayed by reason and logical proofs. And then one night he's placed in the cell uh, with someone who's being in, placed there just in transit. He's part of the Diaz Milau family. Uh, converse, a very prominent converso merchant who's, who was accused of multiple, multiple crypto Judaic crimes. And he had each actually a little booklet list of a list of all the accusations against him. And in the cell, 
Manuel Cardoso, interested in reading and learning about new things, says, oh, what is that book? And he starts reading this little book. And he says, wait, how can it be? There are people who actually keep the Bible. Right? He becomes this biblical-centric uh, uh, Protestant. He finally is meeting someone who is, seems, who's accused at least, of keeping the Sabbath the way the Bible says and keeping the dietary laws and keeping all sorts of things like the Bible says. And this throws him into a, a total confusion because he says, I chose Protestantism because it's closer to the Bible, but this guy's really close, so it must be the Judaism. And he says, I never met a Jew. I never met a Jew in my life. I only heard of Jews as kind of silly, ridiculous things that were ridiculed. Um, and so he's thrown into a, a state of confusion that makes him feel that, that, that leads him to actually confess to the inquisitors in order to get out of prison earlier. Cause he said, if, if Calvinism isn't true, there's no reason for me to suffer here for it. So he, he, he pleads forgiveness and eventually is placed in a kind of a halfway home, uh, for penitence with tons of conversos who he becomes very close to and keeps on learning from. And then, Try, attempts an escape from England, uh, escape escape from Lisbon with them. He's caught. He he doesn't turn anyone in. He's a tough guy. He's, even though he's 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 abused in prison, they try a second time. They get out. They make it to to uh, Holland and 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 I'm sorry, not Holland directly. They go they go to Hamburg and then to Danzig, where he finds work um, with this family. Before that, upon his arrival, he, he undergoes a full conversion, uh, with, with, with circumcision and a new cha- new name. He's no longer Manuel Cardoso. He is Abraham Pellegrino, or otherwise known as Abraham Ger. So Abraham the wanderer, or Abraham the convert, um, Abraham Ger, or Hebrew for convert, and Pellegrino has a sense of pilgrim or wanderer, um, in a spiritual sense. And this becomes his new name, his new identity. He works with this family related to the same person who first turned him on to Judaism in, in Lisbon. And the thing about his autobiography is he's a, he starts off with a tremendous anxiety about his blood, about his lineage. He is a person who, who feels that he should not be there, that because of his legacy, because of his, his father's and, and forefather's antagonism and, and deep hatred, to, uh, towards Judaism, he should not, he should not be, um, lucky enough to be part of God's people. He should not be lucky enough to be part of the, of, uh, of, of the people of the Torah and, uh, the chosen ones. How can it be that I'm here? And so I, I argue, and I think he, I, you know, I think he would make the argument as well that so much of the autobiography, even the things that aren't obviously de- dealing with this, is so much of it is is proving to himself and to his readership that I belong here. I have earned my way here. I made it from being an old Christian st- sunk in in seething hatred for Jews and Judaism and blind in a blind way. I've come through my own my own use of reason, inquiry, exploration, passion for the truth, and the my my courage and ability to to suffer for the Jews um, and for my fellow Jews that I became I, I I through that experience and through writing it all down he like I like you like you quote I, I I argue that he's writing his way into the Jewish people it's his it's his calling card um, and and so and it's a uh, fascinating religious document. Um, because you see this person transform himself in so many different ways in so many different contexts. Um, it's a shame we don't have more from him. Uh, although maybe more will come out. We'll see. Um, there's always more archives to discover. Great. Your last chapter is about the narrative of Antonio de Montesinos, where you take up the central theme of brotherhood and its limits. Tell us about this. Yes. So this is, this is a story which, which is connected to to one of the, the great early questions of modern anthropology, which is what makes any group part of the human race? And in particular, um, are the natives of the Americas 
people who the West had no notice of, could not know how to fit into their, their genealogies, into their histories, into their sacred books, or into their classical um, hist- histories from ancient Greece um, or from the Bible. What do you do with them? What do you do with the Native, the Native Americans? Um, how do they fit into your general scheme of history? And there were many theories, starting with the early, early generations after Columbus, people arguing that they're people just like us, and there's no question. Uh, but most, most intellectuals in the 16th century, in the, in the European context, and into the 17th century and beyond, actually were really puzzled. And came and wanted to come up with theories. You had everything from their descendants of Atlantis that sunk into the sea, but someone had to go up. They're Phoenicians who got lost, you know, lost at sea. They're the mythic, all these different mythic peoples that you read about. Um, they're descendants of some of the monstrous tribes that are described in John de Manville's, um, you know, travel, travel histories. You had all sorts of theories. And one of the theories that had a lot of traction was the Israelite theory that they are descendants of the lost tribes. The lost tribes um, originally were the ten, were part of the ten tribes of the of the northern kingdom of Israel that were banished and 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 dispersed among the world because of their wickedness. And could it be that these people are part of part of that narrative? Um, and and early Spanish missionaries and explorers um, would hear. Certain native words, um, indigenous words, and here Hebrew parallels. So, for instance, katsin, um, the Hebrew word for um, for officer, um, sounded a lot like kasike, which is the which is the the native word, one of the native words for 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 chief. Now, these things ultimately did not hold water, but they were very interesting for. People who were really grabbing at whatever they could to better understand um, who these people were, and there were a lot of people who said they saw parallels between this group and 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 the ancient Hebrews. So there'll, there'll be menstrual rituals that that remind them of the Bible, or certain certain um, certain dietary things, or or that they have some sort of day of rest. Whatever it is, um, they would find parallels. Um, but Montesinos is the first person who, after spending time in the Americas, comes back to the old world and doesn't say that I saw people that seem to be like lost tribes, but actually says, no, I met people who told me they're the lost tribes and they have a message for you. Um, so there's something very new about, about Montesinos's, um, narrative. Um, which makes it almost more uh, outlandish and difficult to wrap our 21st century heads around, for sure. Um, it was very difficult for people to wrap their their 20th and 19th century heads around. But in the 16th and 17th century and into the 18th century, this wasn't hard. This was a book which was which was avidly read and translated into many languages. Um, it starts off, I'll just say a little bit more bibliographically, Montesinos. He goes to Europe and he decides to go to Amsterdam, which had a, a prominent Spanish Portuguese uh, Jewish community. This was a community of people very similar to Montesinos, people who were born and raised as Catholics in Portugal and Spain, lived much of their life as that, and at some point decide to leave Catholicism and leave directly the Iberian world and move to Amsterdam and embrace Judaism fully. Montesinos, when he is in South America, from the outside, he's indistinguishable from anyone else, um, from any other European. Um, <coughs> but he has this experience with a group of Indians who are his porters. They're, they're carrying all the goods that he is buying and selling and transporting throughout the Andes um, in, in northern, in what today is, is modern-day Colombia. And they, they're his porters. They're having a hard day. They, he overhears a cryptic com- a conversation that to him sounds like there's these cryptic messages. He doesn't fully understand them. He forgets about it until he's in a position of difficulty. He's arrested by the Inquisition in Cartagena, the Indias, in the port northern Colombia, um, on suspicion of of being a crypto Jew. 
while in prison, he has this strange epiphany that somehow these people, these Indian porters who were who were helping him, um, were actually they're actually Jewish, and he can't explain it, and he's very confused by it. In fact, he says, you know, how could people who seem so different than me, people who, you know, racially and and another in so many ways. How could they be Jewish? How does that make any sense? And he says, if God gets me out of prison, I will find them and get to the bottom of this. And sure enough, he finds one of them who, after much uh, suspicion, agrees to take him on a journey. And it's this journey where Montesinos, I, I argue, is transformed and leaves behind so much of his former life, leaves behind so much of the accoutrements of power and uh and status that were that were his before although in the inside he knew that that was always um elusive because of his converso background um but it's on this journey that he first of all sheds the what he refers to as the capa y espada the cape and sword um which would mark him as a as a gentleman um he dresses like an indian he he walks for 6 days with this, with his Indian, new Indian, uh, companion. Um, no one's schlepping his bags for him. He's doing it all his own. Um, and he then comes to a place where there's a wide river and from the other side come a series of canoes filled with people who embrace him. They say the Shema Israel with him and they repeat a certain, um, series of messages that are of messianic nature. For the Jews of the world, and he goes once he's completed this mission. He goes to Amsterdam, tells the Jews of Amsterdam about this, and then basically disappears. Uh, Montesinos moves to Recife, where there was a s- small but important Sephardic community, and he dies there, um, supposedly reiterating his his story on his deathbed. He made no money off this. He didn't try to sell the story. The story. He gets a lot of play, not because of Jews, but actually because of Christians. Christians were very excited by this. This made them feel like the end was ne- was near. The tribes, the lost tribes, are being found. That means that uh, the second coming's happening. That the world's changing, the world's shifting, and they wanted to understand it better. They appealed to Menashe ben Israel, the great Spanish Portuguese rabbi, who saw that his explanations were not working, and decided to write a book explaining Montezinos's narrative. But he includes the entire narrative as he had it um, in the book, and so I use that narrative with all the all the archival and textual pitfalls that are involved with using that narrative. Um, but I use that as as his as Montesinos's travel log of this trans, of his own transformation, um, where he starts off one way and really becomes something very different. I mean, the end of his narrative is is him meeting up with an, with a small group of people who I refer to as Hebreo Indians, um, these native, this native group that although are not part of the tribes are allied with the tribes and are their, are their, their allies um, in any future war against the tyrants of the world, in this case, it being the Spanish. And in this meeting, in this very intimate meeting, these men come up to him and say, there's one God. He made us all. All of us are brothers, and and we're all going to be there for each other in the end. We're going to be we're going to be there for that great fight. And so he ends the book. He ends his narrative where these people who, at the beginning of his narrative, are his his servants. They're his porters. They're not his equals. They're not his brothers. They're not his allies. And in the end, there's this there's this bond of brotherhood over this messianic vision. Uh, and this, in particular, this hatred against the ty- tyranny of the Spanish, um, that, that bond them. Um, and, and in the book, one of the things I, th- I talk about is the tension between what I think is this more universal, uh, sense of spiritual cross-ethnic brotherhood that develops in the narrative and Menashe and Israel's actual, um, insistence and, um, an effort in in his book, Mikvah Israel, um, to show that if you read the narrative properly, you'll see that the 
the uh, the Reubenites are a very small portion that actually the majority of the Native Americans are not Jewish and really downplaying their their connection and their brotherhood with with the the tribe of Reuben. Um, and so there's a tension. I mean, I think there's a tension between Menashe's cultural uh, racism and kind of view of the world and view of the place of Jews within the hierarchy, racial hierarchy of his time. Um, and what actually is happening in, in the narrative that he quotes verbatim, um, which is a very interesting tension, I think, that, you know, often the way something is taken and then and then repackaged changes its meaning. And that's the way, you know, and yet those those uh, layers of textual interpretation are still there um, and re- rearrange, you know, textual reorientation are, are still there. Yeah. So that's so I, le- I guess I leave off in a messianic tone. That's great. Um, well, that's a really fascinating story, and um, as you've heard, it's a, a really interesting book. Before we let you go, Ronnie, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so next, so part of what I'm working on is directly related to, to this project because as my book was coming out, um, an amazing discovery happened. Not that I had anything to do with the discovery. Um, but Carvajal, who wrote this autobiography, amazing, amazing work of 16th century spirituality, not just Jewish spirituality, but I think really Western spirituality um, and, and um, colonial Mexico, transatlantic world, all these things. This thing that he wrote, along with many other uh, many other works, I mean, he had this religious, interesting religious anthology of Jewish text that he poached from the from the time in the monastery, all sorts of things, poems. He was a, he was a very talented poet in Spanish, and all these writings in 1932 were stolen from the National Archive in Mexico. And so the trial, the trial records are still there, for the most part. The majority of the trial records of the entire family, both both trials are there, which is an amazing resource. And there was a copy made of the autobiography by Alfonso Toro a few years before the theft. So we have a copy of the autobiography. But until uh, about a year ago, no one has ever seen the manuscript. No one has ever seen the original. And about a year ago, it resurfaced. And thanks to an amazingly generous and, and smart collector of Judaica and Americana, Mr. Milberg, um, in New York City, who was offered the, the text <laughs> at auction, uh, he said, wait, this looks funny. And he contacted the FBI and Mexican authorities, and they determined that this was the original manuscripts that were stolen in 1932. So this all surfaced um, just a year ago, and it's an amazing find. It is thankfully back after a few months at the New York Historical Society for a wonderful exhibit. Um, it was on display for a few months. It was digitized. And and now it is back in Mexico where it belongs. I and a, and a, and a dear friend and colleague, uh, my friend Jesus de Prado, uh, who's at the UNAM at the at the Autonomous University in Mexico City, we are we are planning to to produce a critical edition of the text with a translation into English, along with a contextual commentary of of the works, both looking at the historical context, religious. Uh, currents that are running through it, philosophical currents that are running through it, um, along with philological and lexicog and, and codicological um, uh, features. So that's a really exciting surprise that happened um, connected to the to the project. Um, uh, connected to this, somewhat more connected to the to the book um, as well is another project on the inquisitorial prison as a site of cross-cultural encounter. As I mentioned, many ca- in every case in, in, my, in, in the book, these guys meet someone who's not of their ethnicity, who's not of their intimate group, someone who's not conversos, or someone who is converso, um, someone who's not, you know, a different racial category, um, whatever it is, and that changes their life. That changes how they view the world, how they understand their own religious beliefs, how they understand their place in society. And that's all happening in the strange space 
strange coercive space of the, of the inquisitorial prison. So that's another thing I want to study. I want to better understand the, the mechanics of the inquisitorial prison because there's been some great work on this, but not enough. Um, understand, you know, who was in there, how, why was communication working and things like that, but also find other cases and think about other cases where this is happening and try to see some sort of a trend. I'm not sure where that's going. I have one article related to that that's being, that's, 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 should be coming out soon. Um, and lastly, I have something which is not related in any direct way to Inquisition or, 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 um, um, or the Carvajals or, or Montesinos or any of this is, I, I came across an amazingly, really a beautiful, beautiful work called, this was in my graduate school days, um, Espejo Fiel de Vidas. It's, uh, in, in English, it would be the faithful mirror of life, which is a poetic translation or poetic paraphrase of, of the Psalms of David done by someone who also has a very poetic name, Daniel Israel Lopez Laguna who started out his life in Bayonne in the south of France, moves to Portugal, um, is arrested for Judaizing, and in prison starts this starts his translation in his brain, in his head. He's, he's, he's imagining to translate the Psalms, um, and then gets out, moves to Jamaica, and he finishes it in Jamaica. It's published in, in England in 1720. Um, my, my friend Laura Liebman has done some excellent work on, on, on this, um, but it's, I want to look at this book and ask the question, well, why is he writing a poetic paraphrase? And why are other people writing poetic paraphrases of the Psalms? And what about other translations of the Psalms? And a bigger question about the Psalms, which is, what is their place in people's lives? Are people reading them at home? Is it, is it something that's, that's done as a community? Um, is it a, is it a very, you know, the Psalms are like, Lopez Laguna says they're a living mirror, right? So it's a very personal work. Um, to what extent, you know, do we? How does this translate? And how does it translate? Uh, you know, I'm gonna, I want to focus starting with with the Spartan community, the Spanish-speaking Spartan community of of the Western Spartan, but also look at 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 the at the Ladino-speaking community in the East, um, but also across across communal lines, and also think about the wider Protestant and Catholic context. So. Um, that's a much bigger long-term project that I'm really excited to get to once um, I think I get more of the Inquisition um, out of my blood. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's that's some of the stuff that I'm thinking about. Great. And we certainly hope to have you back on New Books in Jewish Studies again. But thanks very much again for joining us.